Hello and welcome to a CHI podcast for the upcoming Circulating Cell-Free Nucleic Acids Conference being held this April 15th through 16th in Lisbon, Portugal. My name is Samantha Lewis and I'm the conference producer working on the meeting. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Mike Macrogiorgios, who is a professor of radiation oncology and the director of the Medical Physics and Biophysics Division at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and Brigham and Women's Hospitals. His research interests include the development of novel DNA technologies for molecular diagnostics in oncology. Dr. Macrogiorgios is the inventor of several novel PCR-based techniques for molecular diagnostics, including balanced PCR, anti-primer quenching real-time PCR, hairpin PCR, cold PCR, and dissect technology. Welcome, Mike, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Yes, you're most welcome. So for those unfamiliar with the cold PCR technology, could you elaborate a bit on how that works? Sure. PCR is uh, essentially just another form of the well-known PCR. The difference is that cold PCR does not denature DNA at a given high temperature, for example, 95 degrees that we always apply, like standard PCR does. Instead, it applies denaturation at lower temperatures, like 85, 87 degrees. It depends on the amplicon. These temperatures distinguish sequences depending on their exact nucleotide composition. Even a single base pair difference within 200 base pair long amplicon can have a substantial difference in melting temperature. This is, for example, the same principle that we take advantage when we do the well-known high-resolution melting technology. Again, the same principle is valid. So, cold PCR applies special temperature cycling that during the PCR, mutations are converted into single-base mismatches and preferentially are denatured at critical denaturation temperatures within each PCR cycle. By doing this, mutation-containing amplicons are preferentially amplified over wild-type amplicons in every PCR cycle. And at the end of the PCR, mutations become substantially magnified over wild-type sequences. So essentially, cold PCR is a trick playing with the PCR cycling to convert mutations to mismatches, and then mismatches have a lower denaturation temperature. And that's why it's called cold PCR, co-amplification of minor and major alleles at lower denaturation temperature. That's what cold stands for. And you touched on this a little bit already, but what are some of the advantages to cold PCR? So basically... Cold PCR can magnify the mutations so that they can be detected after PCR with any technology that one chooses with. This can be sequencing, this can be HRM, high-resolution melting, it can be digital PCR. Any technology that we currently apply after PCR will be enhanced in sensitivity if one replaces PCR with cold PCR. And specific advantages of this technology over other PCR technologies that magnify the mutations is that with cold PCR, mutations of any type and position along the amplicon are enriched without prior knowledge. That's the difference of cold PCR. Irrespective of where the mutation is and without 
knowing in advance the specific position, there will always be formation of a mismatch with the wild type, and as a result, there will be enrichment of mutations. So, this is useful in cases that we have many mutations spread throughout the amplicon, as opposed to a hotspot mutation like in KRAS, where we know the mutation is going to be codon 12-13. So, as an example, P53 mutations can be spread on many, many different positions along the amplicon. So, conveniently, cold PCR can enrich the mutations at any one of these positions, and this can be then revealed by sequencing. So I would say the main advantage is that it enriches mutations without prior knowledge, appropriate for tumor suppressor genes. And practical advantages also include the fact that for many of the embodiments of the technology, there are no new reagents needed. And sometimes one does not even need to change primers. As long as you have a good and consistent PCR machine, you can apply cold PCR without too much investment. There is some optimization that one needs to invest, but once you do that optimization, I would say, a couple of days work for any given sequence, you don't need to redo that. You can keep applying the, the technology for that sequence without change. So low cost is another advantage as a result because you don't need to buy new reagents, new instruments. Now, as I said, there is more than one type of the technology. So since the original development in 2008, there have been variations in the technology, many of them developed by our group and some by other groups, each variation being more pertinent to different applications. Like, for example, full cold PCR is the originally developed called PCR back in 2008. This is most appropriate for the bigger amplicons that the technology can handle of 200-250 base pairs. So mutations anywhere along that sequence are enriched. However, the enrichment is of the order of tenfold. There is ice called PCR, which is um, the most sensitive version of the technology. So there, with one PCR, you can get a 100 to 400-fold enrichment of sequences over more narrow range of base pairs of about 50 to 60 base pairs. So that's more appropriate for cases where the region you are interested in is within 50 to 60 bases. Ice called PCR is a version of the technology that has actually been licensed and developed by Transgenomic in North America and worldwide. And this year they will be coming up with commercial version of the technology. And finally, there is a third type of cold PCR, temperature-tolerant cold PCR, which is the type that we are going to be discussing at the Lisbon meeting. This is most appropriate for combination with targeted resequencing. So I do want to talk a little bit about the Lisbon meeting. Um, you're speaking this April at the Circulating Cell-Free DNA event, and as you said, you're going to be discussing a, new, a relatively new method anyway that uses cold PCR and then is followed by retargeted sequencing. Can you elaborate a bit more on that or give us a bit of a preview of your talk? Certainly. So the type of samples 
where cold PCR would be most suited for is samples that contain a high admixture of wild-type alleles. So often this is not pure clinical cancer samples, heterogeneous tumors, or samples from uh, circulating DNA in blood, or from spatum, from urine, or circulating cells. In all these cases, you have a high admixture of wild type. So over recent years, targeted resequencing has become one of the main technologies for identification and following up mutations in blood circulating DNA, circulating cells, yet the sensitivity is still a problem and mutations below 2% cannot always be resolved unless very special sequencing techniques are used, which are still under development by other groups. So cold PCR applied prior to resequencing is a simple solution that can be applied to magnify the mutations in such a way that resequencing can detect them easily. So by giving a boost to the sample just before or during the library preparation of targeted resequencing, one can magnify the mutations in numerous genes at the same time by using this new variation of temperature-tolerant cold PCR. This TT cold PCR was first described about two years ago from our group, and about two, three months ago, we published in clinical chemistry a new form of a technology that can apply that with targeted resequencing panels like the AmpliSec, which is currently marketed by Life Technologies, or by the equivalent from Illumina. So TT cold PCR, this temperature-tolerant cold PCR, is a technique which is independent of what type of targeted resequencing you are going to use. So it is platform-independent. So if in the future we have a different form of sequencing, you can still apply temperature-tolerant cold PCR prior to sequencing to give a boost to subsequent sequencing. So an advantage for sequencing is that instead of having the sequencer sequencing again and again wild-type strings of DNA before you hit a mutant, what you do is that you enrich the mutant so that you have a higher probability of finding the mutant and in this way saving up your time and your reagents. So it's a way, a lower cost way to apply resequencing and to identify these low-level mutations which are so important for liquid biopsy. And you mentioned the mutations, and I know you're detecting mutations as low as 0.01 or 0.1%. Is that something that's a result of the cold PCR, or is it sort of a cold PCR and the retargeted sequencing in combination that allows you to detect those types of mutations? So targeted resequencing by itself, as it currently stands, the commercial available targeted resequencing kits will go down to 1% to 2% under best conditions. 1 to 2% mutant to wild type. And that is good for some applications, but if you want to make sure that you will catch all those emerging mutations from targeted therapy that are circulating in the blood, you really need to go below that, down to at least 0.1%. 
The 0.01% is obviously an extreme case. You need substantial amounts of blood in order to have enough copies there of DNA to detect so low-level mutations. But anyway, that's the region. The region is between 0.01 and 0.1% that you want to get in order to get your best shot in getting those mutations. So Targeted resequencing as it stands now can only go down to 1% to 2% and the extra 10 to 100 fold that is needed is provided by cold PCR in our approach. And finally, I want to talk a little bit more about liquid biopsies. Obviously, that's a huge interest to the research community right now, since it has a lot of potential to advance oncology. So I want to ask you where you see things headed and what you think are the next steps to um, get liquid biopsies in a more clinical setting. Yeah, for many years, technical problems were hindering the validation of liquid biopsy samples. And the literature was full of conflicting results on specificity and sensitivity of the relation between mutations and cancer stage or even for early cancer detection or for follow-up. So for several years, there was a gap there between what we wanted to happen and reality. However, over the last three years, next-generation sequencing technology was applied convincingly to cell-free DNA from well-controlled sets of cancer patients. And some great papers have emerged in the literature by groups in England, the Sanger Institute, John Hopkins, Stanford, and Dana-Farber. And the evidence is now accumulating that liquid biopsy has a bright future for disease follow-up and also for disease monitoring during targeted therapy with all the new agents that come these days into clinical use. Application for early cancer detection is another very exciting direction However, this still needs to be validated much further. If successful, it can make a major difference in the way we approach cancer. As you know, the earlier cancer is detected, the more likely it is to be controlled, the more likely you can apply approaches like local therapy, like radiation therapy. So I see a a very bright future to the field, and I want to point out that the main reason we were able to do that is the development of next-generation sequencing technology. This is what made possible the validation of the value of circulating DNA for early cancer detection, for follow-up. So I see the future of liquid biopsy, and basically I don't want to diminish the importance of circulating cells into all that. That's another very hopeful development, and liquid biopsy includes both circulating cells and circulating DNA, RNA, and microRNA. I see a bright future. Well, thank you so much, Mike, for taking your time to speak with us today. That is all I've got for you. And this has been a CHI podcast with Dr. Mike Macrogiorgios of Dana-Farber in Brigham. You can hear more from Dr. Macrogiorgios as well as other leading CFDNA researchers this April 15th through 16th in Lisbon, Portugal. For more information and to register, visit moleculardxeurope.com.